Hey, I think that uh, one thing we need to do right now is uh, I think we just need to recognize all the hard work of the worship team, the tech guys. They come in here Thursday nights, a few hours. They come in, typically when most of us are still sleeping at like 6 a.m., they're already here, run through rehearsal, getting everything ready, checking sound, making sure the PowerPoint's good. So um, can we just give up for the band? Is that all right? And tech. All right. Appreciate it, guys, all your hard work. All right. Um, well, hey, want to start this morning just by throwing this out there. Uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily love this idea, but in churches, youth pastors and student pastors um, are looked at as really strange and weird people, okay, which I take offense to because that's what I do for my job. Now, just throwing this out there, we have to do that because we're ministering to high school junior hires, okay? So we act a little strange, a little crazy, a little odd. Um, so one thing that we'll do uh, here at the church, Jake and I, uh, we'll, we'll have these event nights about once a month, and um, we will make that night a fuse like bigger than the other three nights, okay? And um, we'll do things like, hey, we'll really focus and challenge our students to invite their friends to fuse and to share the message of Jesus. So we're all about that. And so we'll do these event nights and we'll be like, hey, whoever brings the most friends, like, we'll give you like, you know, we'll give them like 50 bucks or something. Or one time we gave away like AirPods. But you know, <clears throat> last year we had this event that we do called Bath Gap. It stands for, you guys have heard it. I know it's really weird. Actually, Zach is the one that came up with this years ago. All right. So you can blame that on him for being weird. All right. But it stands for bring a friend, get a pizza. So you get an entire large pizza and your friend does. You bring nine friends, you go home with nine pizzas. We had a kid that brought 11 friends last year. He went home with 11 pizzas, all right? A lot of pizzas. So, but we did, we did this event every about September, October when they're going back to school called Bath Gap. And we wanted, Jacob and I wanted to like break our record that, that night. Now, previously before our highest attendance was 108 students here. And so we were talking about it and Jacob and I were like, man, how can we get these students motivated, get their attention focused on like, get your friends here. How can we do that? And so to, to break that record of 108. And so what we did is we reached out to our leadership team, about 15 high schoolers, and uh, they all came back with kind of the same, kind of the same idea. They're like, hey, you want us to bring over 108 friends to Fuse? No problem. We want us to go through some pain, all right? So you go through pain, we'll do it. And so Jacob and I, we kind of were talking through the whole thing, and uh, essentially what we decided was, hey, if you guys, you guys can see us up here, if you guys bring over 108 friends for this Bath Gap event last September, um, we will run a full marathon on no training at all. So, <clears throat> good news. I want to throw this out there. That, we're going to start with the good news. First, we had 118 students that came to Fuse that night. It was awesome. It was packed in here. We put Marcos out of business that night. I mean, we had so many pizzas that we gave out. It was awesome. As you can see, though, bad news, all right? We're, we're here, we're like mile 15, 16. The morale was really starting to drop off, all right? It was, it was tough, okay? And um, it, was, it, it, was, it was pretty bad, all right? But uh, we made it. We made it. And um, just to kind of show you guys, like, our whole purpose of us doing this was, again, a unique, weird thing that we did that we wanted to get the students' attention on bringing their friends to few so they would hear the message of Jesus, that was the whole point of it. Now, um, we'll come back to that in a second, but I think we have uh, an ending video of kind of the result. We crossed the finish line, came to church, and this is what happened next. Video off. Come, come sit down, AJ. I can't. <laughs> I can't walk. Oh, my gosh. Oh. 
right, Fuse, we're done. You guys did your part, and we just finished ours. We finished 26.2 miles. Took us a little over five hours or whatever. So, yep. yeah, we're smoked. I don't know. We've been laying this floor for about five minutes, <laughs> and I honestly don't think I'm getting up anytime soon. So... It was worth it, though. Jacob, was it worth it? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was worth it, it was worth it. It was worth it. All right. Peace out, guys. See ya. All right. Yeah, that was tough. That was a painful day or two. So, But we made it, right? We did it. And uh, again, the whole, the whole reason why I shared that is this. Is, again, the, the purpose of that was we did something unique, something kind of crazy, something kind of strange to get the students focused on bringing their friends. And so it's kind of similar with the book of Ezekiel. Now, all throughout the Bible... Um, we, we've seen, and Zach talked about this last week, that God speaks to people. He's trying to speak to people to get their attention to, to follow him. Um, now, if you remember, Zach talked about how God mainly used these guys in the Old Testament called prophets, and prophets were just ordinary, regular guys that had a message from God to reach people. Okay, And so, they had different prophets all throughout Scripture that would do that. They would come and proclaim, hey, this is what God says, what he wants you to do. But Ezekiel is different. Ezekiel was one of the interesting ones. He was one of the prophets that uh, God gave some creative ways to share his message to people with. Um, and all throughout the Bible, I mean, there's different times where God uses signs and miracles. And so he uses Ezekiel, as we looked at last week, to act some things out to the people to see in, in hopes that they would really, it, it would jolt the people's attention to get their focus back on God. So that was the purpose of that. Now, Remember last week, give you a little brief recap here. Ezekiel, he's a prophet. He's only about 25 years old, and he's been taken captive along with about 10,000 other Jewish people that were in Jerusalem. He's been taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon, all right? Um, as he's there, God speaks to him in Ezekiel chapter 3, and he tells him, hey, I, I want you to be one of my prophets. But here's the problem. They're probably not going to listen to you. In fact, they're not going to listen to you because they've not been listening to me for the past several hundred years through my different prophets that I've sent. So he tells them, Ezekiel, you're going to be a little different. You're not really going to be one. That, I mean, you're going to do a few times. But you're going to be one that you know, stands up and just gets to talk like these other guys. In fact, I'm going to make you unable to talk unless it is a specific message from God to the people. And I'm going to use you to act out really what God is doing. And so we looked at that last week. You remember Zach with the army guys? He was having fun up here doing that. So Ezekiel acted that out to the people, the coming siege that is going to happen where the, uh, Jerusalem is going to be taken over. Now, here's the deal. I think we just need to highlight this just for a second, and we'll get back to the message. God needs someone different. God's had Daniel. He's had Jeremiah. He's had guys like Elijah and Elisha, other prophets that would come and proclaim what God says, but it's not getting through to the people. He needs someone unique, someone who is creative. It's someone that will allow that, again, through God working through them, to get the attention of the people and to get them focused back on him, which I think is just a cool thing that God says, hey, I need someone different. And so whatever walk of life or however, you know, maybe we're creative, not whatever, I mean, God can use anybody that puts their faith in him. God can use anybody in a creative, unique way, just like he does with Ezekiel. So it's pretty cool. Now, the two things that God wants to point the, back, the people back to, and really that we need to see today is this. Two things we'll talk about. We'll come back to them at the end of, on, end of the message and kind of throughout. But it says, first of all, God is God and we are not. And then secondly, this is a tough one. God disciplines those who he loves. 
So that's what we're going to be at today. We'll be walking through that in the book of Ezekiel. All right, so remember, for hundreds of years, people have failed to obey God and to uphold their end of the contract. God was faithful to them. He loved them. He showed his love to them. But people continued to do what was right to them. And they continued as God's people to not follow him. And here's the deal. They were called to follow him, but not just for themselves, but also to show God to the nations that surrounded them. But they failed at that. And they continued to fail at it. You see, I think this is something that we as believers in, in modern-day America, we need to be reminded of, and really all, all over the world, I would say. You see, God has given every single one of us a calling to live out. I mean, are we following that? Are we daily spending time with God in his word and prayer? Are we keeping it first in all that we do? Are we living out the Great Commission and sharing our faith? Are we serving in and through the church to reach people for Jesus? You see, those aren't a list of things like we have to do, Naturally, there should be a list of things that really we, we enjoy, we love to do because we are Christians and, man, we can face faith with Jesus and he, he saved us and he called us to this great thing called the Christian life, but often we fail at doing them. See, for these people specifically, they were abandoning the command in Exodus 20 and verse number three, to have no other gods before the true living God. See, and to them, they're gonna find out they're going to find out, and they, they place other things before God, and, and, and because of that, God's got to show himself. He's got to make himself known to them, and unfortunately, with that, God is going to discipline them because he loves them. Now, here's the deal. In our, our life as Christians, there's always going to be something that competes for number one. Zach talked about this a few weeks ago in our last series. There's always going to be something that competes to try to take the place of God in our life. It's a hobby, an interest, a you know, whatever, sport, if you're in college or a relationship. There's going to be different things. The American dream, right, the house, the car. There's always going to be things that compete at being number one in our life. But in reality, the only thing that fills that is God in a daily walking, growing relationship with him. So we're going to look at this this morning, and we'll, uh, we'll make some applications at the end. We'll go from there, all right? But again, we've got a couple of strange things to walk through. So Let's go ahead and let's look at our first verses. Now, last week, Zach, he acted out those, that coming siege. Remember, that's coming against Jerusalem. It's going to take the people. Well, we're going to have two more strange stories that kind of goes a little bit more in depth and in detail. And that's going to be in, the first one's going to be in Ezekiel 12. But before that, we do that, let's jump to Ezekiel 8, 1 and check out what it says. Really just to help us kind of set the scene for what's going on. All right, it says this. In the sixth year, in the sixth month of the fifth day of the month, I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah, they were sitting in front of me. And there, the hand of the Lord God came down on me. All right, so just to give a little timeline, kind of where we're at, what's going on. <clears throat> Roughly, it is September 592 B.C. He receives this vision from God as he's with the elders of Judah. Now, remember, these leaders, they saw what he did the week before that Zach talked about, all right, with the coming siege. And they were probably sitting by, like, anticipating, waiting, hey, what's going to happen next? What's going on? Right, they're probably curious to, to what's going to happen back in Jerusalem. Like, okay, Ezekiel, you talked about that last week, so what's happening next? He gets caught up in this vision as he's before them. Chapter 8, verse 2 to about chapter 12 is where that vision takes place. Now, we're not going to read all of that. We're going to go through a few verses here. But to the primary purpose of this vision is this. It is to make known the cause, the, co the coming judgment that's going to happen on Jerusalem when this final siege hits. So here's the beginning of this vision. It says this in verse number two. I looked, and there was someone who looked like a man from what seemed to be his waist down was fire. And from his waist up was something that looked bright like the gleam of amber. 
he stretched out what appeared to be a hand, and he took me by the hair of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and carried me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the inner gate that faces north where the offensive statue that provokes jealousy was located. I saw the glory of the God of Israel there like the vision I had seen in the plain. So in this vision, the likeness of a man with the same appearance, by the way, as he saw back in chapter 1, he mentions it. He says he saw him in the plain by the river of Kibar. He does something interesting. This in this vision, this individual, this thing that's in the likeness of man, transports Ezekiel. He grabs him by the hair, transports him in this vision to Jerusalem. Again, I know, weird stuff, all right? That's what we're talking about. Ezekiel, he sees the contrast between the glory of God in the sanctuary in verse number 2 and 3 and the extreme moral and spiritual decline of the nation's leadership. See, the sad reality is this, is that this corruption, it's happening in Jerusalem, but not just in Jerusalem, but it's happening, and we've said this already, but it's happening in the temple. Now remember, what is the purpose of the temple? Why was it built? It was built for a place that the true living God would meet and commune with his people, and they could come and they could meet with him, and they can grow in that relationship with him, but also it was so they would show God to the surrounding nations and bring them into the temple, and so they can learn about him. But that's not happening. That's not what's going on. The people aren't living out their calling. And it goes on, it says this. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall and discovered a doorway. He said to me, go in and see the detestable, wicked acts they're committing here. He's told in this vision, so this, this isn't real, this part right here as far as him actually physically doing this, but he's told in this vision to dig through the hole of the wall, to crawl in, into the temple in Jerusalem, and to kind of see what's going on. In Ezekiel 8, he kind of breaks that down. And so this is what he sees, all right? First, he sees that the temple was decorated with idols of the gods of the nations around them. Uh, one of the kings of Judah, Manasseh, had actually brought in some false gods. A god like Asherah had brought them into the temple where, again, this was supposed to be a place where people would commune and meet with God. He brought Asherah, this false god, and other gods into the temple, and people were bowing the knee to them, were worshiping worshiping them. Obviously not a good thing. So he sees them, sees the the, the decoration of the temple, all focused on idols, sees them around. Then he also sees the religious and civil leaders. They were leading Israel and the worship of these false gods. These guys are supposed to be leading the nation to God. And what are they? They're doing the total opposite. Ezekiel, his guide, points out that in this vision, what the people are doing, it's not just happening inside of the temple, but people are doing this in the city streets. They're doing this in their homes. They're doing this out in the countryside, in the fields. I mean, people are not following God. They're turning to false gods as their answer. Women, they're crying out to the god Tammuz, who is the god of the harvest. In verse 16 to 18, the last thing he sees is uh, the, the part of the temple with the steps leading up to the temple, a place where people should be weeping and calling out to God and, and relying on him to be the answer for the struggles they're facing. What are they doing? The priest, again, called to lead God's people to him. They're actually at the steps of the temple, turning their back on God, and they're worshiping a sun god. I mean, all this is happening, and he's bothered. He gets this vision from God, and it's kind of weird, but it's not the weird part that's about to happen in a little bit, all right? Now remember, we, gotta, we have to understand this. 
He is not your normal, everyday prophet, okay? He's strange. He's unique. He's weird. He's different, right? So he's not just going to go and proclaim this, this word from God about how these people need to follow him. He's going to go act it and live it out. And so we kind of see that coming in chapter number 12. And so it's what it says in the first couple of verses. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, and you're living among a rebellious house. They have eyes to see, but do not see. They have ears to hear, but they do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel had been prophesying to them, and even the people here and back in Jerusalem, but the people in Babylon that are listening to him, they're not even following him. People back in Jerusalem are not following God. So they don't get it. They have eyes to see, but they don't see what God's doing. They have ears to hear, but they're rejecting the message the prophets have been trying to tell them for years and years and years. So God tells Ezekiel, hey, man, it's time to act it out, all right? Time to... Time to act it out. All right, here we go. Ready? So this, there's going to be a lot of verses here. We read Ezekiel 12, 3 to verse number 16. So just try to follow along. We'll, we'll go back over it afterwards. All right. Now you, son of man, get your bags ready for exile and go into exile in their sight during the day. You will go into exile from your place to another, uh, to another place while they watch. Perhaps they will understand. That's interesting what God says here. Uh, but eh, they're a rebellious house, so probably not. Next verse. During the day, bring out your bags like an exile's bags while they look on. Then in the evening, go out in their sight like those going to exile. As they watch, dig through the wall and take the bags out through it. While they look on, lift the bags to your shoulder and take them out in the dark. Cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. So I did just as I was commanded. In the daytime, I brought out my bags like an exile's bags. In the evening, I dug through the wall by hand. I took them out in the dark, carrying them on my shoulder in their sight. In the morning, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, hasn't the house of Israel, that rebellious house, asked you, what are you doing? Say to them, this is what the Lord God says. This pronouncement concerns the prince in Jerusalem. We'll come back to who that is in a little bit, okay? Oh, yeah, go back. There we go. All right, the prince in Jerusalem and the whole house of Israel living there. You are to say, I am a sign for you, just as I have done. It will be done to them. They will go into exile, into captivity. The prince who is among them will lift his bags to his shoulder in the dark and go out. They will dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He will cover his face so he cannot see the land with his eyes. But I will spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, yet he will not see it, and he will die there. I will also scatter all the attendants who surround him and all his troops to every direction of the wind, and I will draw a sword to chase after them. Check this out, ready? This is a key line we're gonna come back to in a little bit. They will know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. Then verse 16, he repeats this phrase at the bottom, but I will spare a few of them from the sword, famine and plague, so that among the nations where they go, they can tell about all their detestable practices. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, remember this. What does a prophet do? He shows up and he claims this is what God says, right? And so here he's doing this. He's acting. He's showing out. This is what God says. It was a warning to the people, again, about this third and final siege when Jerusalem is going to be essentially knocked down, wiped out, right, taken care of. So it's interesting what he has them do. A little bit weird. Now, I don't know about you, okay, but... I'm just saying this. If I'm at the house and my neighbor starts to cut a hole in the side of his house 
or starts to break through with the sledgehammer for no reason. I'm probably going to go over there and just ask him, dude, like, are you okay? Like, are you all right? Like, what's going on, man? Did your house make you mad? Did something go on? I mean, it's odd. It's weird. It's strange. But we're talking about Ezekiel. Now, the prince he's referencing here is actually King Zedekiah. Uh, he's the one that digs a hole through the wall and tries to escape this last exile that's going to actually happen in just a few years. Jeremiah 39 and 2 Kings 25 actually give the account of this happening four years from this very time. So he prophesies about four years before, and then it happens. Now, the whole purpose of this strange act that Ezekiel is doing before the people is, is quite simple. That's what we've been talking about. It's to show the people that he should be number one, that God is God, and they're not. In verse 15 and 16, just in case they forgot, just in case they needed a reminder, we highlighted those last two verses. He says this, I'm doing this that they may know that I am the Lord God. It's interesting, in Ezekiel, and it's not by accident, but he mentions this phrase 70 times. He says the whole purpose of this exile, this judgment that's coming, it's happening. So he wants them to return to him in a right relationship with him. Now, we're not going to read it, but in chapters 13 to 24, he explains the certainty of this judgment that's coming. Now, apparently there were some people that were living back then uh, that were Jewish people, part of that 10,000, maybe some of the leaders, uh, that they seriously thought, Ah, this is going to happen. They thought it was going to be a joke. They thought, Ezekiel, you're crazy. You know what you're talking about. And so he takes chapter 13 to 24 to, to, to go through and to actually let them know, hey, this is going to happen. This is coming. It is going to happen. And he does some different things. He calls out the sins of the people. Um, they had been following false prophets, false teachers. Ezekiel actually says in those chapters that they played the prostitute essentially on God, which essentially means this. They put God on the back burner and said, well, God, we forget about you. Your temple is now for us, and we're going we're gonna to worship these other gods of the surrounding nations. They defiled the Sabbath. They didn't honor God on that. And even some of them, actually a lot of them, offered their own kids to these false, false gods and these other gods that, again, re their system of religious practices required that they would do that. Now, we have to remember this. All throughout this time, God has been sending prophet after prophet after prophet with a message, right? A message to repent and to come back to him. And they still would not listen. Now, I want to throw this out there, all right? The next story that we're going to talk about is probably, I don't know if it's the strangest, but it's the saddest story in the book of Ezekiel. Um, and I think you guys will know why after just the first verse. It's a little difficult to walk through, but it's one that we definitely have to address. We'll see that verse number 15 to 16a of chapter 24. It says this. Then the word of the Lord came to me. <clears throat> Son of man, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you with a fatal blow. Now, the delight of his eyes is his wife. And he says this. He says, and again, this is something hard for us to understand. But he tells them, I'm going to allow her to die, Ezekiel. I'm going to allow her to die. She's going to, you know, she's going to die and sad, terrible, right? And I think if we're honest, I mean, I was looking up stuff online today, and there's people that have struggled with how can God let this happen? Like, why? Like, what is the purpose of this? Now, before we get back to the text and kind of walk through this and, and why God allows this and, and Ezekiel's response to this, remember this. God is sovereign over all. 
Right? We don't have all the answers to things that happen in life. I mean, we, we don't understand why he allows pain, suffering, a loved one to pass away. It's the, that's the difficult stuff that we wrestle with as believers, but we should wrestle with it. Right? We should run to God and say, God, why? Well, what, what, what's the purpose of this? And we should yield our life to him. Regardless of, of what happens in life, I mean, we can be confident. And as believers, one of the most promising and hopeful verses, Romans 8, 28, and 29, that promises us that God, he works all for his good in the purpose that we would conform or be more like him. Now, the story goes on in 16b to 17. He says this, so after his wife dies, this is how he wants him to respond. You must not lament or weep or let your tears flow. Groan quietly, do not observe mourning rites for the dead. Put on your turban and strap your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your mustache or eat the bread of mourners. So not only does God tell him he's going to take the life of his wife, but he also tells him he's not allowed to mourn for her. He's not allowed to do the normal mourning practice rites that they did back then. People then, they mourned differently in this culture, all right? We do a funeral, something like that, right? Memorial service, they didn't do that then. All right, when you lost a close loved one back then, you would remove your shoes, you would shave your head, put dirt on your head, put a covering on the lower half of your face. The mourner would then uh, essentially roll or cover his body in dust, and then they would sit in the ashes, and there would be actually other people that would do this with them. But God tells him this. He tells Ezekiel, don't do any of those normal practices. I want you to go out the next day and just live life like it's normal. Just live life like it's normal. Now, I just want to throw this out there real quick. All right. I don't know how he didn't get like, suspected of murder. I'm not really sure. Because he just goes out like life's normal. Like everything's completely fine. The only time that he does show emotion is behind closed doors and he just groans quietly. Now, again, these practices to us seem a little bit odd. Um, I mean, just again, to, to, not, to, to respond how he did would have been so out of the cultural norm to these people that they would have known something, like something's going to happen. So here's the deal. How does he respond after this tragedy? How does he respond? God tells him what to do. I spoke to people in the morning, and my wife died in the evening. The next morning, I did just as I was commanded. Then the people asked me, hey, won't you tell us what these things are, You're, like, or what these things you are doing mean for us? I just want to throw this out there real quick. He tells the people in the morning, this is what's going to happen. In the evening, his wife dies, and he responds just normally. Now, the people, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of pretty harsh, tough crowd. I don't know. I mean, this guy just loses his wife, and, and what do they do? What does this mean for us? We don't care about your wife dying. We don't care about what it means to you. We're not praying for you. What does this mean to us? We know it's got to mean something. What does it mean to us? Why would God take his wife and then tell him to not mourn for her? Before we kind of get this answer, I just want us to hit pause. I just want us to, just to think about this for a second. Remember, this is a real story. It's a real story that happened to a real guy named Ezekiel who lost his wife at 30 years old. The delight of his eye lost her. And yet, even in the middle of this, he faithful, faithfully responds the way that God wants him to. He does what God asks him to. See, I'm sure when God called him to be a prophet several years before this, pretty sure that he didn't think this would be part of the deal. He probably never thought. I mean, my wife is 
yeah, she'll probably die. No, he probably thought when he, he probably, th- I'm just picturing this, God calls me a prophet, he's probably thinking, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call down fire from heaven like Elijah. Man, I'm going to do some awesome things like my buddy Daniel. Dude, God's going to do some, oh, I mean, he's doing some really cool things to me. He's different. God uses him to do different things. He uses us to do different things to accomplish his will. His entire life, ups and downs, is a testimony to the people, to the exiles, non-followers of God, that his faith is in God. His trust is in God. He's just going to respond to how God says. And I think that's a good example that we can be reminded of this morning, right? When we go through things in life, how we're going to respond. And we know there's a world that's watching us. Our life, it should show that we are a people of God. Now, here's the deal. To these people... How he responds uh, would have, again, gotten the attention of, of everyone in the audience. I mean, he knew it would get their attention. He knew it would startle them. And we know that based off of the end of the verse, verse number 19, when they ask, hey, what does this mean to us? So he tells the people what this message from God means. Verse number 20 does this. So I answered them. The word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. I'm about to desecrate or to, to destroy, to wipe out my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the desire of your heart. Also, the sons and daughters you left behind will fall by the sword. Then you will do just as I have done. You will not cover your mustache or eat the bread of mourners. Your turbans will remain on your heads and your sandals on your feet. You will not lament or weep, but will waste away because of your iniquities and will groan to one another. Now Ezekiel will be a sign for you. You will do everything that he has done. And then here it is, ready? When this happens, you will know that I am the Lord God. See, what Ezekiel's wife was to him, the temple was to God and even to the Jewish people. Ezekiel 24, it's a prophecy, again, of this third final coming siege that's going to happen on Jerusalem. God calls the temple, he says it's my sanctuary, but he also says this, it's become the pride of your eyes. See, they were impressed with its beauty, its magnificence. See, the temple had become, again, that thing in their life that they, they focused and they, they worshipped. It was, it was what their life was about. It was what they took all their pride in was this beautiful building. And, and by the way, I mean, let's, let's remember who designed this thing, who built this thing, Solomon. The richest and wisest guy. So, I mean, if you can imagine if the richest person in the entire world built something now that was a place of worship, it would be huge. It would be massive. It would be beautiful. And that's the case here. Everything had intricate detail, which, by the way, is not a bad thing, all right? It was supposed to be the grandest building because it was a place where people met and communed with God. And not just the Jewish people, but also for those people and other nations to come and to worship the true living God. It stood for hundreds of years, and Solomon built it. They were amped up, excited about it. But there's a huge problem here. They believed this. They believed that as long as the temple stood, there was hope that God would bring them back to the land, even though they were rejecting him as the God of their life. I mean, strange events, strange stories. We're looking at Ezekiel, and they have some strange theology here. I mean, their trust was in the physical building. The temple wasn't a place to worship God, but became a source of their cultural pride. 
It was the attitude of, hey, man, look, look what we did. And we built this thing. This thing's awesome. Took a lot of money. Took a lot of time, a lot of effort. We built it. We did this. This is what our hope is in. So their security wasn't in a relationship with God. It was in the presence of the temple. So God chooses to do something that most of us would be like, why on earth would he do that? He chooses to destroy the temple. He says, desecrate the temple. And then he also says, I allow your sons and daughters that are still back in Jerusalem to die because they and you continue for hundreds of years to reject me. Though I've sent prophet and prophet and prophet, you still continue to reject me. And the people, they respond in in Babylon. They respond to this news. They're going to respond in silence. They're stunned. And just like Ezekiel was commanded to do, and, and again, he did when his wife passed away. They would stay silent and not mourn for a couple reasons. Just going to go through these real quickly. One, it was too late to mourn. Right? They should have mourned for their sin long before this. Secondly, the law did not allow people to mourn for people that were justly executed uh, because of a crime they did. So this is a tough one for us to hear. Right? For years and years, though, remember, multiple prophets, they continued to reject God, reject God, reject God. He was patient and merciful with them. He gave them opportunity after opportunity, and they still chose not to turn to him. And then third, why they don't mourn is the grief of their sin would be so overwhelming. It was kind of like a, you know, a wake-up call, right? Like they finally realized, oh, my gosh, like this is it. Like we, we messed up. Why didn't we make this right before? And so they're so in shock that they don't know how to respond. And so all they can do is quietly groan. So in closing. What can we learn from our strange stories in the book of Ezekiel today? A couple of strange stories, digging the hole in his, wall, in his wall of the house, and then you know, his wife passing away and him not able to mourn. Like, what, what can we learn from this? We've talked about a lot of stuff today, so we're going to keep this last part very, very simple. Okay, Number one, we said this at the beginning. We can learn this, right? God is God, and we're not. It's like, is God really God in your life? Is he first before everything? Is he before everything? We mentioned this already, but 70 times in the book of Ezekiel, this phrase is said, they or you will know that I am the Lord God. It's a reminder to God's people. It's a call to repentance, a call that they would repent, right? Turn from their sin and follow God. Exodus 23, verse number three, they were making other gods before them. What other gods are we putting before God today? If he's not first in our life, then what is he? So God is God, we are not. But then the second thing, God disciplines those who he loves. God's people in our study, they didn't think that God would discipline them. They thought that it was a joke and that he would not exercise his judgment. He wouldn't do that. But he does. It's coming. It's happening in just four years from this time. It's going to be severe. But here's the deal. So is their sin. I mean, let's just think about this. They went after false gods. They took God out of the temple and put Asherah and Molech and Baal, other gods, inside the temple. They worshiped and followed them. They even sacrificed their own children to these false gods. I mean, we cannot downplay our sin. And for a lot of us, we're going, well, we don't worship the God of Baal or Molech. or No, but we worship the American dream. I mean, we worship other things that take precedence over God, and they shouldn't. As our sin, it's a big deal. When we as believers, we continue to neglect taking care of those discipline has to happen because God can disciplines those who he loves. I mean, any parent would tell you that. 
I mean, I, as, a, as a dad, I got two kids. And one thing I hate to do is discipline my kids, but I have to do that to teach them to show them, get them back on track. Now, here's the, the deal. Good news of today. God wants to take your sin. God wants to take it. I mean, God wants to take it today. The Bible says if we have breath in our lungs, man, we're alive, we're well, that, man, God, he wants you to pour your sin out on him. He wants to take that. If you're a, not a believer, you've never made the decision to give your life to Christ for what he did on the cross. was personally for you, by the way. You can make that decision today. You can put your faith in Jesus and trust in what he did for you. Now, maybe you are a believer and you're like, man, AJ, whew, this, was, this was a wake-up call. My sin is a big deal. Man, I've, I've messed up. I get that. Well, again, make it right with him today. Take 10, 15 minutes. Get alone. Man. Find somewhere in your house. Get away from the kids, wife, or vice versa. Wife, get away from your husband. Spend some time alone talking to God and pour your heart out to him. Just be honest. God, I messed up in these areas. Forgive me. I want to make you first. That's what God wants from us today. More than anything, he wants you to be in a close relationship with him. That's the whole reason why God decided over 2,000 years ago to send his son, Jesus, on this earth to die a miserable death on the cross. It's for a relationship with you. So what will you do with what you've heard today? Let's pray. Our God, we come before you. God, we thank you for letting us have this time that we can just stop, we can focus in on your word for 35, 40 minutes, and we can just talk to you. God, I pray that you would help us just to learn from the story today and to, to remember the command and the one we should follow, Exodus 20, verse number three, that we'd have no other gods before us. God, I pray that you, God, that we would make you God in our life, not tomorrow, not next week, not when our family issues are taken care of, but at this very moment. God, I pray that you would be God. We wouldn't trust in ourselves. God, I pray that if we're off in our relationship with you as believers or non-believers, God, we would make that right. If we're non-believer, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that we would put our faith in what you did was for us. God, help us to make our relationship with you right, we pray. God, we thank you for the life of Ezekiel. Strange, no doubt. We've got practical life lessons that we can learn and apply to our walk with you. Pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.